0: All right, take your Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 this morning, we're going to be looking at verse 23, going through verse 29 of Hebrews 11. I want to invite you to stand to your feet in honor of God's word. So we read the passage together. Hebrews chapter 11 beginning in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter By faith, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for this example of what faith looks like. Father, even though it's a story of faith long ago, uh, it, it really guides us to understand what it means to follow you today. And so I pray, Father, take this truth and help us, Father, to, to not just see it, and to understand it, and to hear it, but, Father, to, to have a, a desire and a longing by the power of your Holy Spirit to go from here and live it. So, Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. We pray, Father, that you would uh, give us ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say to each of us in Jesus' name. Amen. All summer long, four-year-old Dylan Stitch was afraid to dive off the diving board. Dylan's mom, Marla, said he had no interest in it. Uh... And so they decided to maybe try to encourage him a little bit. And they're like, hey, you, you want to go off the board? You want to give it a shot? And, uh, boy, he was just terrified of the thought of it. Enter 95-year-old, 95-year-old Daniel Biss, who was in the Air Force during World War II. So he knew a, a thing about uh, fear and bravery. So when he saw the neighborhood kid that, that he knew at the family pool and, and heard everyone trying to coax him to, to jump off the board, well, he knew that uh, he, he needed to step up to the plate. Uh, Mr. Biss uh, decided that he just needed, this, this young boy needed some convincing. Uh, he was going to coax him off the board and he said, man, I, I mean, I was going to try. So Mr. Biss borrowed a swimsuit because he didn't have one. And uh, with cane in hand, with cane in hand, he stepped out onto the board. (laughs) He's going to dive off. He's carrying a cane. He is the great-grandfather, a great-grandfather who hadn't been on a diving board in 50 years. And yet he stood up, tall, proud, ready to go. And then, as he was standing there, it kind of occurred to him, this thought occurred to him, man, this was a dumb idea. <laughs> what in the world am I doing up here? And then he said, he started to get real nervous, and he said, quote, quote, uh, well, I was, I was up there that far. I, I figured I might as well go through with it. So at the age of 95, he took the plunge and it wasn't perfect it wasn't all that pretty but it was effective because shortly after mr biss took his last dive off of a board uh, little dylan took his first and uh, today uh, because of that example dylan jumps constantly it's his favorite thing to do they can't get him off the board and it's this courage that he witnessed from this 95-year-old neighbor that gave him the, the, the power, the courage, the will to actually go through with it himself. I, I love that story because it shows that courage is contagious. It, it rubs off on others. It, it teaches that courage, the story teaches that courage is is not so much the absence of fear, because Mr. Biss, he he was was pretty shaken up there. It's not the absence of fear, this thing called courage, but it's the willingness to to dive in in spite of it. And and so we think of courageous people or people who, who have no fear. That's simply not the case. Well, I've spent two weeks looking at what Hebrews chapter 11 teaches about the subject of faith. And we have seen thus far that, that faith is very future-oriented. Uh, we could say it like this, that faith is eschatological, meaning eschatology is the study of, of the end times. And so we could say that our faith is tied into last things. Now you may not think of faith like that because normally we just think about faith as kind of in our daily experience. But what we find out here in Hebrews chapter 11, it is that faith in things that are, go down, that are going to go down at the end that supplies us with the courage today. And that's exactly the way it's, it's played out here in Hebrews chapter 11. It's kind of like faith uh, that a soldier in battle would have. And he, he desires for the long war that he has fought in to come to an end. He longs to go home. He longs to be home with his family, with his wife. He longs to eat a home-cooked meal, to sleep in his own bed, to tuck his kids in at night. He, he desires that deeply. And yet he, he believes that the day when he will get to go home and the war will end, he believes confidently that that day will come. And because of that, he fights hard now in the midst of the war. That's kind of the way faith works. It's it's seeing this future and living now because of that future. And, And again, that's what we find here in Hebrews. Faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for. Now when it says "hope for, it doesn't mean, well, I hope that happens. Hope for is a certainty. Uh, our hope is built on truth, not just speculation. And so it, the things hoped for are things that we believe are truly going to happen, but they haven't happened yet. And so we have this assurance of things hoped for. We have a conviction or confidence in receiving things that we don't have yet. That's the definition of faith according to Hebrews 11 and verse 1. And because of that, we have because we haven't received it yet, faith comes with a with a longing, with a longing with an inner confidence that the day will come, but with a longing because we're not there yet. And so the Christian hope is is similar to that we we are in this world still we are in the midst of a long war and we long to be home we long to be home with our lord we long to be caught up with an eternal joy that can never fade we long for that and and we long for that hope to be realized but it's just not here yet And so we keep fighting, we're still in the war. We keep waging a war, but we keep persevering because we believe in that day to come. If you remove that day, then all hope is gone, all desire to persevere vanishes. The wisest man who has ever lived, a guy by the name of Solomon, wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, he said God has put eternity into the heart of man, of mankind. That means that every single one of us kind of have a, a homing device that's basically going off all the time, pulling us towards home. We long. It produces in us this, long, this longing. There's, it's one of the reasons why so many people are restless today. That's why we get bored, and boring, being bored is, is actually not a bad thing, in spite of what you know we believe that we can't be bored for a second, so we've got to get on a device or something. Maybe in our boredom, we need to realize the fact that it's because we're not satisfied in this world. There's got to be more. So the bore, boredom is a good thing. The restlessness is a good thing. Because there's nothing in this world that ultimately satisfies. And, and we have eternity in our hearts. And we're not in that realm yet. And so there's nothing that can satisfy our, our hearts here. You can, the guy who wrote that, Solomon, ask him because he tried everything. And he tried everything. He tried wealth. He tried power. He tried knowledge. He tried achievements. He tried possessions. He built beautiful places, palaces. He had relationships, all the sex he ever wanted. And his conclusion at the end of a life of all of the pleasures of the world was that it is all vanity, a chasing after the wind. C.S. Lewis said it like this: "If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world." A few years ago, Tom Troxel and I stood in the rain for about three hours to watch the Rolling Stones perform. got to check off one of my, my bucket lists. Mick Jagger, Rolling Stones, right, was still dancing on this massive stage at the age, are you ready for this? 79 years old. 79. Guitarist Keith Richards is also 79. And uh, some people think that he actually died a long, long time ago, and that's just kind of, he's still up there. But... But he still played, they all played like they were like 29. And and they played all of their biggest hits, these greatest hits while it was pouring down rain, including their most well-known song, Satisfaction. Now, even if you're not a Stones fan, you know that song. I can't get no Satisfaction. And I try, and I try, And I try, but I still can't get no satisfaction. That song was released in 1965 when it first came out. Uh, Mick and and Richards were, were 22 years old when that song came out. And here they are, closing in on the age of 80. And guess what? They still can't get no satisfaction. They still haven't found it. And he's tried, they've both tried, and they've tried to try, to try, to try, to try, but they still couldn't get it. They still couldn't get it. You see, the thing is that that, uh, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and multitudes more, every person who's ever lived in fact, have eternity written on their hearts. And because we have eternity written on our hearts, there is no satisfaction outside of eternity. There's no satisfaction. And they've tried for 60 years and still haven't found it. And because I think Christians believe that to be true, uh, that puts us in kind of a weird state. It, It puts us in the reality that we are not of this world. That we don't really belong here. Because, because we can't find any purpose and satisfaction ultimately here. We have a longing that is beyond this world. And, and because of that, that puts us at odds with the world. And it puts us, I think that's becoming more and more true, more true now than it has been in the last 150 years in America. That we are at odds with the world. And I believe that going forward in these, these days, I believe we're in the last days, I believe that going forward, that next to love, that the Christian virtue of courage is going to be uh, the most important virtue that we will need going forward. Courage. So how does faith fuel our courage. Well, I'm glad you asked. That's why we're turning to Moses of all people to learn about faith and learn about courage. We we read in the past passage that by faith Moses when he was born was hidden for 3 months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. No fear. They had faith without fear. And I think those two things go together. So it says, by faith, the parents of Moses uh, hid him for three days when he was born. The faith of of Moses' parents exemplified courage to Moses. Moses was born a, a slave. He was born into slavery during a time when fear of a king the king of Egypt, sparked courage in slaves. Pharaoh was afraid that the Israelites would soon outnumber the Egyptians. He lived according to fear. And so he would take over his fear, and a lot of people are driven by their fears to do things that are not necessarily ethical because fear drives us to make really poor decisions. And so Pharaoh's fear caused him to create an edict which all of the firstborn boys, in, in uh, Israeli boys that were born in Egypt would be thrown into the Nile. And so the, they, the Jews had midwives and they were responsible for making sure these babies ended up with the alligators. Now to defy the king of Egypt was to put your life on the line. I mean, it was a scary thing to do. But we're also told in the passage that the midwives feared God more than they feared the king, more than they feared Pharaoh. And so when Moses was born, they saved him. They didn't throw him into the Nile. And his parents kept him hidden for three months, three months' time. His parents were told also had no fear of the king and his edict because they trusted in the Lord. So again, their faith is conquering their fears. And so Moses grew up in a home that was marked by faith and courage. Now his parents' window for teaching him their beliefs was incredibly small. It was limited to his early childhood. Because he would be raised in Pharaoh's household, uh, even so, we discover that God, in His providence, had His hand on Moses, and His parents then kept him hidden for three months. But in as providence kind of played out, we we know that he ended up going back home to be with his mother for a certain until he was weaned, and, and during that time, that faith and that courage was plugged. Into him. And we know that his parents, you know, you know that his parents were people of not only just faith, but their faith made them people of prayer. And so when they had to turn Moses over, he's going to be raised in Egypt. His teenage years in Egypt. And so, you know, the whole time they were praying. They were praying. They trusted in the Lord. And so Moses grew up under the, the lures of Egypt all around him. Uh, he grew up in the, the wealth, the power, the prestige, the fame. He would have been educated under the ways of Egyptian culture and religion. Uh, he would have been taught about Ra, the sun god, versus The God of Abraham. And yet God, in the midst of all of this, had a purpose and his plan from the beginning. None of this was by accident. You see, God knew the future. God always knows the future. And because of that, he providentially weaved together this whole story for Moses. Where Moses would be taken, he would be spared, he would end up in Egypt, he would learn all the ways of the Egyptians, and yet, he still kept his faith. I mean, you, you think about parents today, and we, we send our, our kids off to, to schools, and, uh, and in this particular culture, they're surrounded by so much so many things that go against their faith. And we got to pray. we got to pray. You can never underestimate the power of a praying parent or, or grandparent, right? Because our kids right now are growing up in the most uh, secular anti-Christian faith culture that, that I think our nation has, has ever known. And we're sending them out into that mess. Our kids are They're taught to worship the secular gods of this age. They're inundated with social media and the cultural expectation and news of the day. They're tempted by the values of the culture, which is godless, and yet God is not handcuffed by all of that. And so the the thing is, do we trust our kids to God in the midst of the chaotic mess that they're being raised up in. And so that's the the heart of this thing. Parents and grandparents. I I believe that the best posture for fighting this secular age for the sake of our children, for the sake of the next generation, is not ranting on social media. It's kneeling before the throne of God. Now look at what those prayers accomplished for Moses. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, This, this is a stunning, stunning piece of scripture, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, greater wealth, Considered it greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Here's why. For he was looking ahead to his reward. He had that eschatological vision ahead of him. Well, by refusing to uh, call himself Pharaoh's daughter, excuse me, Pharaoh's daughter's son, he was basically giving up his place and the Egyptian royal family, his royal place in Egypt, which meant that he was not just simply giving up his position, but he was giving up his power, he was giving up his possessions, he was giving up his prosperity. He could have been a really big deal in Egypt. He could have rode around in golden chariots. He could have been admired by spectators. Paparazzi would have gone after him. But instead, when it says that he would not associate with the Egyptian family, it meant that he was going to associate with his own family, which means that he was going to associate with slaves, with nobodies. The people with stripes on their backs, that's who he wanted to associate with. That takes courage. It takes a lot of courage. Man, that is the path of downward mobility that flies in the face of the American dream. And the American dream is not all that different from the Egyptian dream. And Moses says, no. He chooses a downward path. He chose it. It wasn't forced on him. It didn't just go bad for him. He didn't lose it. He chose it. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's stunning. He considered, it says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. That is a stunning statement. That is a remarkable statement. He could have had pleasures and treasures they were all available and he chose instead of pleasures and treasures he chose mistreatment and reproach and then he has the gall to say I got the better end of the deal I came out ahead I didn't lose anything it was all gain." what an incredible perspective Now, remember who the writer of Hebrews is addressing in this passage, right? These are are Jewish converts who are tempted to turn away from their faith in Christ and return to Judaism. To go from the Old Covenant, or excuse me, the New Covenant back to the Old Covenant. It's what I call reverse repentance. To go from that reality, to go from grace to law. And we see that whole theme written all the way through the book of Hebrews. Now, if there's anyone who represents the old covenant to these people, it would have been Moses. Moses was synonymous with the law. You could say the law says, or you could say Moses says, and it would be the same thing. And so why did these Hebrew converts consider their... Religion, going back to religion over Christ. What was the thing that was pulling them away from Jesus back to their old way of life? Well, it was because they were suffering. It, be, it was because following Jesus had become very costly. They were suffering for Jesus. They'd lost family. They've lost titles. They've lost their inheritance. They've lost lands. They lost their future security. And it's kind of the same thing that Moses lost, but did so willfully. So their hero is an example to them of faith and courage. They're bearing. Now, the reproach of Christ, because they followed Christ, their their families are against them, the Jewish community they grew up in is against them, they are rejected, they are thought to be fools, they are despised. That's what the word reproach means. But if Moses, the father of the old uh, covenant, If he gave up his titles, if he gave up his wealth, if he gave up his pleasure and treasure and then still considered it a win, do you see how much more they should follow and do the same thing? If they really want to follow Moses, it's a beautiful argument. Oh, you want to go follow Moses? Well, let me tell you about Moses. Moses followed Christ. So, if you want to follow Moses, you might want to follow Christ. you can 't go from Christ to Moses when Moses was all about jesus' it's, it's brilliant it's brilliant. Egypt was extremely extravagant and flaunting their their wealth, and everything belonging to the the upper class was made of gold. I, I remember when uh, uh, the Ramses exhibit, one of those Egyptian exhibits, came around town years and years ago. And I went to that thing, and everything there was made of gold. It was either covered in gold or made of solid gold. Everything. They, they built these giant pyramids for these pharaohs. And guess what they filled them with? All of this gold stuff. Because they believed that when these, these pharaohs died, that they were going to be able to take all this stuff with them. They even put their servants in there with them. They put their wives in there. How bad of a bummer would that be? While they were alive, put them in there. Because, you know, he's just going to take them with him. And here we go, thousands of years later, and it's still there. And so is so, the mummy. It's all still there. But you go around and you just see this extravagant wealth And Moses was was in the midst of that. And so he he basically takes a scale. He takes all the treasures of Egypt. He piles them up on one side. And then he puts the reproach of Christ on the other side. Poverty, mistreatment, slavery, canceled through the whole realm of Egypt. Egypt. And he says, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. The the reproach of Christ is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. How stunning is that? He says the pleasures of sin is fleeting. Uh, The wealth of the world, it's temporary, right? The reward of heaven, by contrast, is forever. And so his future dictated his decisions in the present. That's what divine wealth management looks like right there. I can have all the pleasures and treasures of Egypt, uh, let's say for 80 years, and then I die separated for eternity from Christ and his reward Or I can lose everything now for, let's say, 80 years or so, but then I gain Christ and these eternal treasures. It seems like a no-brainer. But when all we have is the moment, when all we live for is, is the moment that we are in, the here and the now, that kind of decision is not so easy, right? That's where faith comes into play. This is where faith has to dictate our our life to be able to say no to that kind of riches and treasure in all of the world to try to satisfy us and to say no, I'm living for treasures in heaven. That's where faith comes in. Verse 26 says Moses was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. The Greek word translated here as looking means to uh, turn aside or to look aside from many things in order to focus in on one thing. That's what the word literally means. And so Moses had to look away from all of this wealth and focus in on the reward that was coming in the future. And that's what drove him to make the decision that he made. Uh, Incidentally, uh, that's the same way we fight against sin, the the exact same way. Uh, We don't fight against sin using willpower. That never works. I mean, you might have a victory or two, but but it is not sustainable. No, you fight sin by looking at something more weightier, more valuable, more satisfying you look at that through the lens of faith and say, you know what? That's that's better than this. And that thing is Christ that we look at. We'll, we'll see this uh, probably next week, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. But I, I just kind of want to jump ahead a little bit because I think it's, it, it's pointing to what I'm talking about here. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which... Cling so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking where? To Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Zero in on Jesus. And, and when we see the world and all of its lures, and we, we look at social media and, and uh, Instagram feeds, uh, summer's the worst for Instagram. It's just the worst. Hey, look at my vacation. Hey, look where we went this time. Hey, we did three vacations this year and and you're sitting at home. Instead of looking at the Instagram, look at Jesus. Look at what's coming. Because what's coming, there's not a vacation in this world you would want to trade for. It's coming. Faith gives us the courage to, to let go. To let go in trusting that the world's pleasures and treasures will satisfy us. And we let go of that and we look to the reward that will never perish, that will never fade, that's ahead of us. Moses' faith gave him courage to let go of the gain of Egypt in order to gain the reward ahead. Now the world's a scary place, right? Especially right now. We talked about this a lot, or, you know, shootings every single week. Life feels so fragile. It makes us insecure about many things. I, I noticed, uh, I went to a movie last uh, week or so ago, and it occurred to me that the first thing I thought when I sat down was, where's the exit? Where, where's, what's the best escape route? Is that what we have to do today? Yes, that's the way we think today because of the world that we live in. And, and, and I, the, the world's a scary place. And, and, and you not only think about that kind of stuff, but you think about, you know, in light of the economy, you think about, man, am I going to have enough money in the future? Will I have enough money to retire on? Uh, what kind of world are my kids going to grow up in? What, what, will, will they be okay after I'm gone? We're just haunted by those questions. And then you throw in things like, what about my health and my career, my marriage and my retirement and my aging parents and looming death? The world's a scary place, isn't it? Scary place. And on top of that, everyone walking around on eggshells these days, terrified that we will offend someone by saying the wrong thing, never intentionally, but we just end up saying the wrong thing to the wrong person. And then, oh, you're canceled. You're done. You're, you're socially shamed and rejected. That's the world we're living in. Faith is not having confidence and courage that everything in this world is going to work out for our favor. It's not. Faith doesn't prevent us from losing our job, from getting cancer, from getting in a car wreck, from having rebellious teenagers. That's not the way it works. Faith says I can face anything, any of those things with courage because I believe ultimately everything's going to be okay. Ultimately Christ is going to win. Look at Psalm 46, one of my favorite Psalms, Psalms uh, 1 through 5. Let me read this passage God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. There's our courage. Though the earth give way, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, pure chaos everywhere, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will not fall. Isn't that awesome? God is our rescue and strength. It says, in trouble, not apart from trouble. The trouble's still there. Therefore, even though we are in trouble, we will not fear. Courage is a decision. It's a determination. It's a defiant stand against fear. We will not fear. That's a decision. It's a choice volitional. We are not going to fear. We will not. We're choosing not to fear. Even though there's trouble everywhere. Even though we're in the midst of it. Then he describes the scene of the world like it's just simply falling apart, doesn't he? Like a scene from an apocalyptic movie. Everything, in mountains are tumbling, the seas are foaming. But notice where the courage comes from. It's not by working it up. Even though it's a volitional choice, it's not that I'm going to be, I'm just going to be courageous. I'll just work that up. No. First, he looks beyond the roaring sea, the quaking mountains, and he sees beyond the river whose streams make glad the city of God. He deals with the trouble and the mess of this world by looking to the next. And he knows that when I get there, that will never fall. And that's coming. That's coming. And that reality gives me courage in this reality. That's the way it works. So he looks forward to the city of God his eternal future. Everything is going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And that's exactly what we find in Moses. Look at verse 27 and 28. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing, there's his courage, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so the destroyer of the firstborn would not uh, touch the firstborn of Israel. See, faith has eyes. Faith sees the invisible. Moses saw him who is invisible. Saw the invisible. That's a strange statement, isn't it? How do you see the invisible? How's that even possible? Well... You can see what you can't see by faith. Faith has eyes. The the mountains are falling uh, into the sea, and we see that reality. The waters are roaring and foaming. We can see that reality. Pharaoh's armies are approaching uh, uh, towards the Red Sea. We can see that reality. We can see the unpaid bills piling up. We can see test results from the doctor. We can see job evaluations. We can see eviction notices. We can see pink slips. We can see our our grandkids starting to look like Sid Vicious. We We can see the news of the latest mass shooting. We can see the social media filled with venom. We can see all that, but faith helps us to see beyond that. We say, man, I, I can't see God. I can see all that, but I can't see God. I can't see heaven. All I see is this, this reality. How am I supposed to see the invisible when all I see is this? By faith. The unbeliever hears this and says, man, that's a cop-out. That's just a cop-out. It's like believing in fairy tales. This is the reality. This is all there is, is the reality. But God has a way of showing himself even as he remains invisible to the eyes. We see the invisible with the eyes of the heart. Ephesians 1.8 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In order that you may know the hope of, To which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. You see the prayer? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you can see the finish line. So that you can see the inheritance that's coming. You're going to be rich. So we see our future with God and God opens the eyes of our hearts that we could see that reality in the midst when all of the world is crumbling around us. That's reality. Notices Moses' faith in the invisible God gave him courage. It says that he, just like his parents, just like his parents, he did not fear Pharaoh. Did not fear him. Right? He could see Pharaoh. He could see the armies. He could see the red face of his... Stepdad, I guess you could call him. And yet he persevered. He persevered. His parents were not afraid of the most powerful man in the world. And that spilled over to Moses. And he's not afraid either. Courage. Faith asked the question then, who are you looking at? What are you looking at or who are you looking at? When fear sets in, who are you looking at? Uh, when your physical eyes see nothing but trouble, who are you looking at? With the eyes of your heart or with the eyes in your head? There's a big difference. And so, I don't know, perhaps uh, seeing the invisible with your eyes is a, is a really new concept for, for you. Maybe looking to God or looking ahead towards heaven is, is uh, never really been on your radar. It's a thing that you do. Perhaps the idea of looking to God is is actually unnerving because you're not sure how to approach an invisible God. And you think, man, I mean, everything that I know and think about God is a little bit scary. I don't know how looking to Him is going to relieve my fears when He scares me to death. Well, uh, here's the thing. It's true that approaching God is actually a terrifying prospect that melts our courage. Should. Until we discover that Jesus made a way for us. That's what it means by verse 28 by faith. He kept the Passover, sprinkle the blood so that the destroyer, the firstborn, uh, may not touch them. The Passover points us to the cross. Here's our scarlet thread once again. Right? The blood over the doorpost saved the Israelites from the wrath that led to death of all the firstborn. In the same way, the blood of Christ over us, over us, covers over, atones for our sin. Therefore, we escape death. It's, it's a beautiful picture of salvation in Christ. And that is how we have confidence to approach this scary God, because the scary God now is our Heavenly Father. And we approach him with confidence. You remember Hebrews 4, 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Man, faith in Jesus gives us confidence uh, before God and thus courage in the world. This past Friday... Uh, one of my heroes went home to Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller taught me more about the gospel than, than any other person ever has. Uh, I, I don't think there's a book that he wrote that I haven't read. Uh, I've listened to countless sermons and, and lectures he has given. I had the opportunity to actually meet him at, at one point. Uh, but we're not like, you know, besties or anything. But when I heard the news that he died, and I knew that, you know, the end was near because he had pancreatic cancer. Uh, but when I heard the news that he died, um, and I wept, I, I had tears rolling down my face. I was like, I don't even know this guy, and I'm crying. That's how much of an impact he has had on me and thousands more. He was, he was this intellectual giant, but he was humble and kind. That's a rare combination. In one of his books, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, uh, he wrote about a time that he uh, faced fear right before going into a surgery for thyroid cancer. Before he got pancreatic cancer, years before he got thyroid cancer. This was his first battle with with cancer. And... uh, And it says basically in this thing that he wrote how the Lord opened the eyes of his heart in a time of need when he was most fearful. Let me read to you what he wrote in that book. There have not been many times in my life when I felt the presence that passes understanding. But there was one time for which I am very grateful. It was just before my cancer surgery. My thyroid was about to be removed, and after that, I faced a treatment with radioactive iodine to destroy any residual cancer, cancerous thyroid tissue in my body. Of course, my whole family and I were shaken by it all and deeply anxious. On the morning of my surgery, after I said my goodbyes to my wife and son, I was willed into a room to be prepped, and in the moments before they gave me the anesthetic, I prayed. To my surprise, I got a sudden, clear, new perspective on everything. Eyes of the heart opening. It seemed to me that the universe was an enormous realm of joy, mirth, and high beauty. Of course it was. Didn't the triune God make it to be filled with his own boundless joy, wisdom, love, and delight? And within this great globe of glory was only one little speck of darkness, our world where there was a temporary there was temporary pain and suffering it was only one speck and soon that speck would fade away and everything would be light and they thought it doesn't really matter how the surgery goes everything will be all right me my wife my children my church will all be all right. And I went to sleep with a bright peace in my heart. I love that last line. So in the midst of his fear, the sounds, the smells of a hospital, being going into surgery, God opens the eyes of his heart. He sees the reality of the glory and majesty that is God. He sees the future He says, it's all going to be good. And he falls asleep. Peacefully. People like Tim Keller, people like Frankie Rainey, who entered, by the way, heaven on the exact same day, they, they have left behind a legacy of faith and courage to us. They're the ones who climbed up on the diving board and said, watch, watch me do it. Now you go. It's an inheritance greater than gold, right, that is given to generations to come after them. Notice what it says in verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. The Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same thing, were drowned. The faith of Moses' parents led to the bold faith of Moses, and the bold faith of Moses led to the courage and faith of the people. It's contagious like that. Can you imagine what it would have been like uh, walking through the dry Red Sea with walls of water on each side? I mean, it would have been a little terrifying, don't you think? Because you're going, man, that's a long way. Uh, Sure hope this, this holds up. And so there's Moses, and he says, well, let's go. I'll go first. And he steps down into it, and he just starts walking. Aaron's like, all right. So he goes. A few more people go. A few more people go. Next thing, the whole nation goes. It's contagious like that. Faith and courage. It wasn't faith that, that drove the Egyptians in their attempt. They weren't going, wow, that's awesome. We're going with them. No. No, what, what, what it was for them was the treasures of Egypt and they watched the workforce leaving. And they're like, oh, we got to, no, that's not going to work. We got to get them back. And they go, not on faith. And the walls cave in and they drown. Man, what a picture, isn't it? Isn't that not the truth today? We're saved from the sea of God's wrath because of our faith in Jesus. Anyone who thinks they can get to the promised land without faith in Christ is going to be crushed by the waves of holy justice. But in our day, I think there's a difference, a little difference in the story, because in our day, God has called us really to go to the Egyptians. To the lost souls of the world to warn them, to convince them, to form a new allegiance with Christ, to say, come, come join us. Come by faith. Come by faith. Don't, don't come based on thinking that you're gonna be able to get through on your own. You won't. You got to come by faith. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage to bear witness for, for Christ in our day. I mean, it always has, but it seems to be even more difficult now because our times are so contentious and uh, the church has become so marginalized in our day that I believe this is why I said at the beginning, I believe that going forward uh, the greatest virtue outside of love that we need to have is, is going to be courage. Because in our day, man, sharing Jesus is likely going to cause you to bear the reproach of Christ. You will risk rejection. You will. Uh, you might be considered in this culture, even in the Bible about it seems, uh, to be a fool, to be narrow-minded, to be uneducated, to be homophobic, right? to be judgmental. That's, that's the label that the world has put on us. And it will take courage knowing that all those stereotypes exist and then in the spite of that to speak up for Christ. But courage is not something that we work up. It is given to us by the Holy Spirit. He will give us the courage in a time of need. But that's the thing is you got to step out on that. you got to believe and step out because it's not there. You might be scared to death. In the moment, and then you speak out, and all of a sudden, there's a courage that you didn't know you were capable of. It, it worked the same way with Moses. Moses looked to the reward. He said, man, that's better than anything that Egypt can do to me. I'm going to take the reward. And when it comes uh, to courage, I'm going to end on, on this thought. When it comes to courage... And you look at the history books, uh, perhaps the greatest example that the church uh, has ever had in history is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer opposed Hitler uh, openly. He started an underground church, the Confessing Church, because the state church was basically making uh, all the churches register and then basically preach propaganda Nazi propaganda from the pulpit. And uh, Bonhoeffer said, nope, not doing it. Eventually, he was hung in a concentration camp for his courage. And he looked ahead at his reward and bore the reproach of Christ. Love Bonhoeffer. I love him. I want to be like him someday. But there's this other guy, this guy. Uh, He's much lesser known... Than Bonhoeffer. He's a German pastor of the same period whose name is Martin Niemöller. Uh, not quite as courageous as, as Bonhoeffer. And, and yet I think that in, in our culture, maybe he's a better example for us uh, than Bonhoeffer. When the Nazis came into power, uh, Niemöller... Uh, capitulated to the demands on the church. And man, he was actually a supporter of the Nazis for a time because he figured that it was good for him, it was good for the church, right? If you, if you kind of get in good with the right people, then everything will go good for you. And he figured, man, this is going to get better if, if I'm a supporter And uh, so then he began to to watch as things unfolded, and he saw that the people were starting to idolize Hitler. Disturbing. He noticed that Hitler's power went unchecked. And then uh, he began to take down all forms of opposition. And then he started eliminating the Jews. And when he saw that, he was like, I can't do this. In a meeting in January of 1934, Niemöller and a group of other Protestant pastors actually had a meeting with Hitler. In that meeting, things were said that made him realize that his, his house had actually been bugged. Uh, that the people that he was supporting were very suspicious of him because he was a pastor. His church had been under close surveillance. He had been bugged. And he would, at this point, he came to the realization that either I'm going to have to compromise my faith completely or I'm going to have to cut ties and face the music. And he chose to resist. And Neil Muller had been fearful. But he got to the point where he had to speak up. He had to speak out. He knew he could not follow Jesus and support the Nazis at the same time. He couldn't do it. There is a a quote uh, from Niemöller on the wall of the USA Holocaust Museum uh, that says this. That's that's actually the wall. That's a dude's shadow looking at it. I don't know if you can read it or not, but I can read it to you. It says, First they came for the socialist and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. They came for the trade unionist and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Niemöller changed course. He began speaking boldly for Christ He supported the confessing church that refused to compromise with Hitler and he spent seven years in prison as a result of it. He saw the reproach of Christ as greater wealth than the comfort of compromise. Not at first. Not at first. He was driven by fear at first. But then he looked ahead And he gained courage. I think that Niemöller may be a better example for many of us rather than Bonhoeffer because what he shows is that we can change. That we can change. That we can repent. That we can decide to go the way of faith and courage. That we're not just sitting there beating our chest like, you know, I'm here to save the day. That we can be realistic about the fact that, well, there's a lot of things that have got me pretty shaken in our culture in, in our day and i'm driven by fear a lot but i can decide different i can decide different i can decide to go by faith and find courage and the way that we do that is we look ahead forward to our reward and then we throw caution to the wind let's pray Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, faith in a future reality, hope, promise. You cannot break your promise because of who you are. You're God. If you promise, it's as good as done. And you promised us that through faith in Christ that we have an eternal reward, that we are already united with Christ, sitting, as it were, in the heavenlies with Christ. And, and that's where our hope is to be found. Now, Father, there's a lot of things in this world right now that are scary. A lot of things, you know, raising kids is scary. Going to a movie is scary. It, it's just nuts out there and the mountains are trembling, and the seas are roaring and foaming, and we can look to God seated in the city to come. And we can find peace, and we can find courage. So, Father, help us to go there. Help us to, to be filled with that kind of faith so that we might have that kind of courage. I ask, Father, also that you would... Uh, give us a, a sense, uh, Lord, of, of your, your presence and courage that we might share our faith, that we may not hunker down in fear in these last days, that we might not keep our, our faith, our light under a bushel, uh, but we might lift it up that the whole world might see. And so give us courage, Father Uh, Give us courage in our workplaces, in schools, in neighborhoods, family reunions, to stand up for Christ, to speak boldly for Him. Because any reproach, any reproach that we receive is greater wealth than the approval of others. So Father, give us courage that we might honor you by speaking for you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me There's a decision you need to make. I want to encourage you to just step out and make it. You can come to the altar and pray and pray where you're at. I'll pray with you. But uh, don't don't just let this uh, moment pass you. Uh, As the Spirit has worked on you, uh, respond in whatever way He's leading you to do so. You come.